Tonight's reading is John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him. Jesus said to them, My time has not come yet, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about, about it, that it works, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, James. It was great having uh, the band, the Cheetah Girls, get back together to lead us today. I've had a different one for every service. I felt the best about the Cheetah Girls, so I'm glad you laughed. Um, I do appreciate the fact that we get such incredible worship leaders here at this church, that it's so fun to be able to just be a part of it, participate in the, the music here. My name is Cody. I am one of the pastors at Redemption Church Arcadia, uh, and today we're going to be continuing the sermon series called Love Walked Among Us. And if you uh, have not been a part of what we've been doing so far, really since the beginning of the year, I, I highly recommend you going back and listening to some of these sermons. What, what we're doing is we are trying to take a slow motion look at the life of Jesus because we think that it's important for us to not just understand who Jesus was, not just understand the theological implications of Jesus, where Jesus fits in the larger narrative of Scripture, but also to take a closer look and see how Jesus did what he did. What was Jesus like in the everyday? What kind of people did he hang out with? What kind of things bothered him? What kind of things uh, angered him? What kind of things gave him joy? We want to look at those things. We want to look at how he responds to different people and different circumstances. Because uh, really, uh, because of two things. We had talked about this at the very beginning of the sermon series. The first is because God is like Jesus. And if we as Christians want to know who God is, we need to take a look at what Jesus was like. If we want to know why God acted the way he did in certain parts of the Bible or, or what he would be like to be around, we just need to look at Jesus. We need to look at the life of Jesus. We need to look at how he interacted with different people. Also, not only do we want to know what God is, that God is like Jesus, not only do we want to know God more through this, but we are supposed to be like Jesus. We, as followers of Christ, are supposed to be like Jesus. Being a Christian doesn't mean knowing about Jesus. It doesn't mean uh, understanding the basic premise of Christianity. It means following in Jesus' footsteps and through the power of the Spirit in our lives, becoming more and more like Him. And so the goal of what we're trying to do is we're trying to take a hard look at what Jesus was like in these various um, scenes out of his life and ministry. Because all of them ultimately point to what we are looking at as his overarching theme of his life, which is love. Yes, Jesus was a lot more, and love is, is a lot more multifaceted as we look at it. But overall, if we want to know what love looks like, in real life, if we want to know the, what quintessential love is, the true love that, that um, exemplifies love, it's Jesus. 
He is that love that walked among us. Um, we, we're basing, uh, we're, we're following along, I guess, uh, through a book called Love Walked Among Us by Paul Miller. And we're preaching out of the, the passages that are in, so we're still preaching out of the Bible. But it's a great supplement. If you haven't picked up Paul Miller's book, Love Walked Among Us, I highly encourage you to. It's a great book. There's a lot of great stuff in there that are, that's going to really uh, pair well with what we're doing here on Sundays. And in so doing, we, we've looked already at the role that compassion and empathy play, for example, in the overarching theme of love. We've looked about how judgment can block our ability to have compassion. We looked about how love tells people the truth, how love is honest without being condemning. We've looked at all of those things, and today we're actually going to look at what we're calling the foundation of a loving life. What, what is at the core of it? What undergirds a loving life? And as we'll see today, the foundation of a loving life is dependence on God. The foundation of a loving life is dependence on God. What's interesting about this passage, when I first saw it and saw that I was preaching on it, I didn't actually, at least initially, see how this passage had anything to do with love and with Jesus showing love. It seemed like a kind of a strange exchange between Jesus' brothers and him. It seemed a little random and out of nowhere. And so I think we're going to have to do a little work. But, but I, what I love about this passage is as we do some work, we're going to see just how much uh, this has to do with the way Jesus lived his life in a loving way. Um, so let's look at the passage now. Let me read it one more time. And we'll talk a little bit about the background of it before we get into the meat of what we're going to be talking about. So John chapter 7, verse 1 through 9. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. So to give a little background on this story and where this happens in the larger story of Jesus' ministry, uh, Jesus has begun his ministry He's predominantly in the northern region of Israel, which is a region called Galilee, which we see referred to here. This is where he grew up. This is kind of his home turf. Nazareth is a town in Galilee. Um, he's familiar with this area. This is where he starts. This is where he meets the majority of the disciples that end up joining him are all from Galilee. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not an underpopulated area. Some of them are, it's, but it's not a super overpopulated area. Um, but that's where he's been at, and that's where he's done the majority of his uh, miracles, healings, teachings up until this point in his ministry is up in Galilee. In fact, the biggest one of his entire ministry happens in Galilee, and it happens before this moment, which is the feeding of the 5,000. If you're not familiar with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is out in the middle of nowhere teaching and preaching. He has this giant group of people following him, 
They numbered at least 5,000 men, which means most likely when you count the women and the children was probably 15,000 to 20,000 people, which by today's standards is a big crowd. By their standards was a giant crowd. Uh, and he's doing this, all of a sudden um, he realizes they're getting hungry. They're nowhere near any town, any way for them to get food. So he steals a kid's lunch. <laughs> um, he doesn't steal the kid's lunch. He borrows the kid's lunch. He prays over it. He multiplies the, the fish, the bread, all of that stuff, ends up feeding everybody there. And it's this incredible miracle. And this really is the height of his popularity. The feeding of the 5,000 is when he is most popular with the crowds of people that are surrounding him. And so what his brothers are telling him to do is coming on the heels of this momentum. And that's important for understanding where the brothers are coming from and why they're saying this to him. The other thing is understanding what the Feast of Booths is. The Feast of Booths was a Jewish festival. Uh, it's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one they celebrated every year as one of seven Jewish festivals that were celebrated throughout the calendar year. One of three of the festivals which all of the Jews that would be anywhere else in Israel or even beyond Israel would travel back to Jerusalem to celebrate. So the idea that they're traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths was normal. Jesus probably has done this every year of his life since he was born. Um, they would travel there. They would sing the Psalms of Ascent. They would go there. It's a week-long festival in which they would usually dwell in tents. So the way you're supposed to celebrate this is they would dwell in tents. Uh, they would have a series of different sacrifices and, and psalms and scripture readings throughout the week that they would do. And they did this to remind themselves that once they had to dwell in tents in the wilderness, that, Jesus, that God ultimately was still able to provide for them in the wilderness, that even though they were wandering the wilderness, God provided them food through manna. He provided water from the rock. He provided shelter for them to dwell in in the midst of it so that they remember every year not only God's rescuing, but that God is able to provide even in the midst of the wilderness. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrating. So you have this setup. Jesus is in Galilee, uh, and he was not ready to go to Judea yet, and we'll get to why in just a second. But he's there. He's probably with his brothers. It would not have been weird for him to be with his brothers. Uh, they lived there as well. Uh, he was probably with his disciples, with his brothers, and they brought up, hey, let's go to Judea and let's go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. But the way they brought it up becomes this dichotomy, ultimately, where they are wanting him to go there, which was a normal thing, but for reasons that Jesus was just not okay with. And you can kind of see this interesting dynamic play out between the brothers and him. The brothers don't come across very good in this story. Uh, they seem a little petulant. They seem a little petty. Uh, they almost maybe seem jealous of Jesus, or at least uh, they don't understand Jesus' new hobby of this whole Messiah thing. Uh, you know, and, and you have to think, they grew up with Jesus. They were carpenters alongside Jesus. They did all the things brothers do alongside Jesus. Now all of a sudden Jesus is launching into this. So they were they were a little hesitant to believe. To be fair to them, all, most of these brothers, if not all of them, ultimately do believe in Jesus and follow him. James, who is one of his brothers, 
is the James who wrote the book of James later on. He was killed by a sword in Jerusalem as the leader of the Jerusalem church later in the book of Acts. So they redeem themselves, or they are redeemed ultimately in the story. But here, they're just kind of angry little brothers. So you have this dynamic playing out. I think of it very similar to the dynamic between the brothers in the Joseph story, if you're familiar with the Joseph narrative. So in the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Genesis, Joseph was one of the youngest sons of uh, um, Jacob, I almost said Isaac, which doesn't matter, the youngest son of Jacob. <laughs> and, and basically he comes to his brothers and he says, hey guys, I have this dream, it's this awesome dream, let me tell you about it. You guys are all going to bow to me. What do you think of that? And then he's like, also, I have this really cool coat. It's got a bunch of colors on it. My parents gave it to me. They love me so much. And you see this dichotomy, how the brothers don't like Joseph a whole lot, and they end up selling him into slavery after convincing their parents that they killed him, which is a fun story. But you see a little bit of this play out, and, and I think that that dynamic is there, that there is a little bit of hostility and antipathy between his family and Jesus. And you actually see this in other parts of the, of the Gospels as well. But you see this play out. But what I think is really important and underlying this is what Jesus' brothers are expressing is an opposing view of what wisdom is and success is compared to how Jesus views wisdom and success. That the conflict and tension that you're ultimately seeing in the midst of this exchange is really the conflict and tension of two opposing worldviews, two opposing ways in which they define wisdom and success. And that's what I really want us to spend our time looking at. What, how do the brothers define wisdom, and how do the brothers define success, and how does Jesus define wisdom, and Jesus define success, and what does that mean for a loving life? So let's look first at the way of the world. Let's look at his brothers. And what was their view of wisdom? What we see here is that wisdom is knowledge that is rooted in self-sufficient cunning. For them, what wisdom was, was the ability to play the game well. It was something that was rooted in self-sufficient cunning. This is what I think is so interesting about what the brothers say to him. Even though they might have been saying it in a mocking way, they might have been saying it in, a, in, in kind of a, a almost uh, mean way, what they were actually saying to him from a business standpoint, from a practical standpoint, was not bad advice. I think that's something that's important to note here. What, the, what those brothers were saying to him, if we understand their view of success, which we'll get to in a second, makes sense. It was not bad advice. They said, you know, why don't you go from here? This is small time, Jesus. I know you did this whole 5,000, but imagine what you could do at the Feast of Booths. And by the way, at the Feast of Booths, probably well over a million people were gathered in Jerusalem at the time. So it was a substantial difference of crowd. said, imagine if you can do that there with only 5,000, what you can do there with a million. If you want to be seen, if you want this new branding thing, if you want this whole Messiah thing that you're trying to do to take off, you really need to get into a bigger playing field. That was ostensibly what they were telling him to do. That if you really want this thing to have momentum, 
you need a bigger crowd, which isn't necessarily bad advice. His brothers understood the importance of timing, momentum, and exposure. They were giving him decent business advice. They understood that if you, the, the age-old axiom, that if you eat a salad at the Henry and no one is there to Instagram it, then the salad never really existed, right? That there needs to be an audience for things to have meaning. So they understood this. But what is, I think, so important in this is that the reason why they wanted him to do this was not because they believed in him, which we know they didn't believe in him because there's a verse that says his brothers did not believe in him. It was not because they had the best interest of the people in mind or even the best interest of Jesus in mind. They wanted this to happen because this was their way out. They wanted this to happen because this was their way of ultimately getting out of obscurity. This was a self-serving request for them. They didn't want Jesus to do these things because they actually cared about Jesus or his mission. They cared about themselves and wanted him to play the game well. And this pushes right into their view of success. And we'll see that they're actually uh, part and parcel of the same thing. That how they understand wisdom, which is basically self-dependent cunning, the ability to play the game well, feeds right into their view of success. Their view of success is simply this. It's self-serving fame and influence. What they thought would be successful for him was for him to become either famous, influential, powerful, you name it. And they thought, if, you, if that's what it means to be successful, and you, if you want to be successful in this new venture that you're doing, then let's at least do it well and get you there. Their view of success was self-serving fame and influence. And on the one hand, I think it's, it's good to know at least that this confusion of success with fame is not a new phenomenon. That this has been around for a while. But it is a prevalent one. In fact, I think there is an element of our modern day culture in which fame plays an even larger role in our understanding of success. There was a Huffington Post article that came out maybe five years ago that was basically looking at two different studies. One was the uh, highest value that is being portrayed in kids' television programming. There's a list of basically 16. And then if it correlated at all with kids' vocational aspirations as they got older. They were just trying to see if they correlated, how they correlated, all that stuff. At the time, and I don't think it's gotten any better since then, the number one value portrayed in t- uh, kids' television programming was fame. That the, the be-all and end-all of existence was to be famous. It wasn't family values. It wasn't fitting into a community. It wasn't helping and serving other people. It was to be famous. Think Hannah Montana. No disrespect to Hannah Montana. So you have that. And what's interesting is they asked kids these questions. The overwhelming response was that they wanted to be famous. They wanted to start a YouTube channel. They wanted to start something like that. They wanted to do whatever it was they had to do to be famous. Even those that wanted to be like sports stars or musicians or anything like that, they didn't do it because they actually cared about sports or music. They just wanted to be famous over and over again. 
And I even see this in my own life. I, I see this with my own kids at times. I remember the coolest I have ever been in the eyes of my children. Like literally the coolest I have ever been in the eyes of my kids is when they found out that if they looked up my name on Google or YouTube, they would find me. <laughs> like they were floored by this. I remember distinctly my eldest going, you're on YouTube? <laughs> and I didn't have the heart to tell him that any idiot with a smartphone can be on YouTube uh, because I was just relishing this idea of being cool in my kids' eyes. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because we don't even, we, we don't promote fame as this high value at our house, but they're definitely influenced by it in their culture. They're definitely influenced around them. I mean, we live in a world where social media influencer is a real job, where you can sell stuff and make money just doing things on the internet. And that's nothing against necessarily that job. What that shows is that fame is a currency in this world. And that Jesus dealt with it, it was happening at Jesus' time just as much as it's happening now. That there is this ethos in our culture that equates being successful with being famous, influential, and powerful. And Jesus saw this. And I think it's, it's important to see that Jesus' brothers don't care necessarily about him, about his mission, or about the people that he was trying to heal or teach. They just cared about him being famous so that they could be successful and, and come alongside him. Then, what we see butted up against this is the way of Jesus. And it couldn't be more different. His view of success, his view of wisdom is so radically different than his brother's. For Jesus, wisdom was not self-dependent cunning. It was not the ability to play the game well. Jesus had no interest whatsoever in playing anybody's game. What wisdom for him was being rooted in dependency on and submission to the Father. Wisdom was rooted in dependency on and submission to the Father. It was a very clear-cut definition of what it meant to be wise according to Jesus. It was do what God the Father says. Plain and simple. And I think that's what baffled so many people because Jesus, as you look through this, is so incredibly unpredictable as to how he will act. Sometimes he does what people would expect. Sometimes he doesn't. And it's because the outside influences of Jesus were never what drove Jesus' decisions. Jesus submitted himself completely, holistically, to God, the Father's will, his power, all of it. Jesus was dependent on God, and that was the source of his wisdom. That was what he defined as wisdom. What I think is really interesting about this story is that right after this whole thing happens, Jesus actually does end up going to the Feast of Booths. Right after in verse 10, it says, but, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So Jesus does go to the Feast of Booths after this whole argument that he has with his brothers, but he just does it privately. He doesn't do it publicly. He's not going out there teaching. He's not going out there with large crowds. He's just going privately to celebrate this. And while he's there, the few public things he does do basically only serve to make enemies. The first thing he does, he's teaching in one of the, the temples, uh, or he's teaching in a temple one time. He's looking at the religious leaders, these reformers, if you will, 
of the Judaic code and and of the Torah. And he's saying, you guys say that you care so much about the law. You say that you care so much about the Torah, that you know it so well, but you don't. You don't care about it, and you don't listen to it. That was his first message. After that, the crowd said, you have a demon. So it didn't go well. The second thing, on the very last day, and what happened on the last day of the Feast of Booths was the priest would come forward on the, sacrif- the sacrificial lamb that was in front of him and dump all this water on it, basically as a means of saying, like, we've been cleansed through this sacrifice. And as this is happening, Jesus is looking out of the crowds and he's, he's asking them, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Because if you are, come to me and I will give you living water that will make you never thirst again. That's the context that he says that in. Once again, it doesn't make the religious leaders happy. It's at this moment that the religious leaders start to plan and scheme for how they can arrest and kill Jesus. So at that point in time, his brothers are kind of maybe wishing that he had just not gone to the Feast of Booths. It didn't go well for him there, at least from our standards. But I think what it shows is that Jesus was not working by anybody's plan. He didn't have a master plan of his own. He just did what his father wanted. He didn't listen to his brothers. He didn't listen to his disciples. He didn't give the people what they wanted. He did what, Jesus, what God, his father, willed. That was it. That was the only lens through which he understood wisdom and life. He did what his father willed. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who's written a number of books uh, and has a podcast called Revisionist History, had an episode on it where he talks about basically this scale that psychologists will put people on between being agreeable and disagreeable. It's kind of, it's the agreeable, disagreeable scale. And uh, basically using it as an argument as to why oftentimes the innovators of our culture are also fairly disagreeable people. Um, Agreeable means you are more prone to listen to, to care about the uh, opinions of other people. Disagreeable meaning you care less about the opinions of other people and have less interest in pleasing them. So a disagreeable person would be somebody who doesn't care about people's opinions. An agreeable person would be somebody who does. And the argument, he says, is most likely agreeable people are, very, are a lot more fun to be around. But we need disagreeable people to actually move things forward. That's Malcolm Gladwell's um, uh, take on that and what he was trying to put forth. And I couldn't stop thinking about this as I was reading this story of Jesus. And and I want you to hear me correctly as I say this, um, and I'll explain what I mean. But if you're looking at it through this lens, Jesus was quite possibly the most disagreeable person who has ever walked the earth most disagreeable person who ever walked the earth. There's a reason people hated him, hated being around him, because he did not care whatsoever how people thought of him, how people perceived him, and he made no decisions of his based on other people's opinions, which can be frustrating. Jesus was a disagreeable person. Now, the difference between Jesus and a lot of other disagreeable people is that the reason he was disagreeable was that he was so agreeable to God. He was so pliable to the will of the Father. But he was a disagreeable person. And we see this play out over and over and over again. We see this play out here. You can see his brothers walking away saying, 
Well, we tried, but Jesus is going to do what Jesus does. Now, obviously, we see in hindsight that it was because he was agreeable to God. You know, this is a side note, but it's been making me think about it a lot um, from a, even a parenting perspective. Um, so I, I have four kids, and, um, you know, on the disagreeable, agreeable scale, I'm over here, probably. And as it turns out, we produced four children that are kind of over here. And uh, I think that the prayer that we can oftentimes have as parents when you have disagreeable children or strong-willed kids or are working with disagreeable people, married to a disagreeable person, uh, living around or with a disagreeable person, is that God would just make them more agreeable. I think that's the easy prayer that we have, is that God, yes, James is clapping. Um, amen, yes. Uh, and I think that's my flinch, is I just wish they were more agreeable. I wish they would be a little bit easier to deal with. But as I'm looking at this, as I'm thinking of Jesus and how disagreeable of a person Jesus was and how disagreeable I think a lot of the people God uses in history, I think it needs to shape our prayers a little differently. And yes, this is a little side note, but I think it's relevant. To where what I'm wanting to pray, not that my kids would be more agreeable, but that they would just be dependent on God. That God would use their disagreeableness for his kingdom and glory. That they would use your spouse's disagreeableness or your coworker's disagreeableness, your roommate, whoever it is in your life, for his glory by making them more dependent upon God. So it's a side note, but I, but I do think that there's something to that. That we recognize that there's, there's this distinction there. That what made Jesus unique was not that he was an agreeable person, but that he was dependent on God. That's what made him so wise and ultimately drove him to this. And we see, once again, as we look at his view of success, that his view of success is an outgrowth of his understanding of wisdom. That just in the same way that wisdom and success are part and parcel of the same thing for the culture's view and, and kind of the world's view of that, it's the same with Jesus. That Jesus' view of wisdom makes sense when you understand his view of success. And his view of success was simply this, the death to self-love of others. For Jesus, in his mind, what, me, what being successful looked like was that by the end of his life, he would have been completely and utterly poured out for the people around him. That his life would mean nothing. That he would have nothing left. That he would have put it all out there for the sake of other people. For Jesus, that's what success looked like. For Jesus, that's what it meant to move towards success is that in the end, he would ultimately pour all of himself out for the sake of loving other people. I think this is one of the reasons why the world hated him, was because he loved the world so much. He loved the world so much that he would actually tell them the truth about themselves. He was willing to look at people of power he was willing to look at his peers. He was willing to look at his family. He was willing to look at his friends and in love tell them the truth that what they were doing was evil, that what they were doing was harmful, that what they were doing would not just destroy themselves but destroy the people around them. And because he loved them so much, the world hated him 
so much. And it didn't deter him. And I think that's what's so important. That he did all of this stuff out of love. Nobody understood why he did what he did. Nobody got it. He died alone at the end of his ministry. But he did it because in his mind, what it was, what his ultimate goal, what it was to be successful in his life, was to do everything he could for himself entirely out for the sake of loving other people. Think of his ministry, for, uh, for example, uh, even just the trajectory of his ministry. Uh, from an outside perspective, what happened? If we were judging it by our standards of success or by the world's standards of success, Jesus was this nobody who didn't have the proper pedigree to really do what he was doing or claim what he was claiming, decides, I'm going to start this, this new startup, I'm the Messiah thing, he goes to get this crack team, and instead of getting the best people, he goes to the Sea of Galilee and gets a bunch of fishermen to join his team. So he's already off to a bad start. He has a few good things that happen, but he doesn't seize on any of the momentum. He doesn't really rally the right supporters. He doesn't really rally any of this stuff. He ultimately makes everybody mad around him, and he is murdered alone at the end of his career. That's what happened. That was his ministry. By our view of success, by the world standard of success, Jesus' life was a complete and utter failure. But that was never his view of success. To him it was success because it was the perfect expression of love. And this is how we see it come full circle. That because he was so dependent on God, because he was listening to his Father's will all the time, because he was never interested in pleasing other people, changing himself, and changing what God had called him to do for the sake of, of, of pleasing other people or serving himself or anything like that. Because of that, he was able to love them, to love us, to love the world the way it needed it. He was able to do that all at the expense of himself. Paul Miller writes this, he says, The brothers want Jesus to do miracles at the feast that the millions will see and in turn make Jesus famous and powerful. But Jesus knows that these miracles would not be acts of love, but manipulations for power. Such selfish motivations would pollute love like a skunk in the basement during a party. No matter how much we open the upstairs window, no matter how much we perfume the house, if we mix selfishness with love, the smell keeps floating up infecting everything. I love that quote. You can't mix selfishness with love. Even just a hint of selfishness mixed with love pollutes the whole thing. And Jesus knew that. That is why Jesus outright pushes against his brothers in this instance and in every instance of any other thing like it. Because there was no part of what Jesus was doing that was selfish. No part of it was self-serving. Everything he did was for the sake and what was in the best interest of other people, even when it didn't seem like it, even when they hated it and hated him for it. His view of wisdom was being dependent on and submitting to the Father. His view of success was the death to self-love of others. And so as we look at this, recognizing that we live in a world that defines wisdom and success the other way, that what it means to be wise is to play the game well, and what it means to be successful is to win. 
We live in this world. We are, we are swimming in those waters. And so when we ask ourselves how we respond to this, we have to understand that what we are doing as we step out as followers of Jesus, as, 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 as pursuing what Jesus did, is that we are going to have to reorient ourselves to our understanding of what it means to be wise and what it means to be successful. So let's look at how we respond. There's really two different things that I want to point out. The first is that we need to cultivate dependency on Christ. We need to cultivate dependency on Christ. What we're going to find is that this is work, this is a lifelong venture um, that won't always be fun. Um, Stanley Hauravas uh, wrote a book called After Christendom, and in it, he, he describes a process that I think is really helpful in understanding what it means to cultivate dependence on Christ and why it's so important that our understanding of discipleship, our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus is rooted in just knowing that he's our master and, and listening to what he says. Let me read this. It's a little long, but, but I think it's, it's, it's good. I tried to pare it down, and I, there was just nothing that I wanted to take out of it. To help us get a better picture of what it means for the church to be a disciplined community, we ought to learn how to lay a brick. This discipline will help us think about what it means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian. To learn to lay brick, it is not sufficient for you to be told how to do it, but you must learn a multitude of skills that are coordinated into the activity of laying brick. That is why before you lay brick, you must learn to mix the mortar, build scaffolds, joints, and so on. Moreover, it is not enough to be told how to hold a trowel, how to spread mortar, how to frog the mortar, but in order to lay brick, you must hour after hour, day after day, lay brick. Of course, learning to lay brick involves not only learning myriad of skills, but also a language that forms and is formed by those skills. Thus, for example, you have to become familiar with what a trowel is and how it is used, and how it is to be used, as well as mortar which bricklayers usually call mud. Thus, frogging mud means creating a trench in the mortar so that when the brick is placed in the mortar, a vacuum is created that almost makes the brick lay itself. Such language is not just incidental to becoming a bricklayer, but intrinsic to the practice. You cannot learn to lay brick without learning to talk right. The language embodies the history of the craft of bricklaying. So when you learn to be a bricklayer, you're not learning a craft de novo, but rather being initiated into a history. For example, bricks have different names, like clinker, to denote different qualities that make a difference about how one lays them. These differences are discovered often by apprentices being confronted with new challenges, making mistakes, and then being taught how to do it by the more experienced. All of this indicates that to lay brick, you must be initiated into the craft of bricklaying by a master craftsman. Being a Christian does not mean showing up and learning about who Jesus is. Being a Christian does not mean in and of itself going to Bible studies or anything like that. Being a Christian means that on a daily and regular basis, you are practicing being a Christian. You're living out the values and ethics seen in Christ. That we are learning the language of Jesus. 
We're learning the language of the scriptures. We're joining in the history and community. All through the practice of submitting ourselves to the apprenticeship of the master. Discipleship looks a lot more like an apprenticeship than it does going to school. And all of this, and everything that Stanley Hauerwas talks about within this context, needs a master. It needs somebody whom we are submitting to, that is guiding us, that is showing us, that is walking through all the mistakes and failures that we go along the way, that we can be rooted in and dependent upon. Being a Christian Being a loving Christian, being a wise Christian, being a joyful Christian, it is required that we are dependent on God. And so it means that we need to cultivate it. Jesus did this through a number of different ways, but a few that I want to point out because I think that there are ways that we can follow in his footsteps. If we ask, why was Jesus able to hear God the Father's will so clearly? It's because he lived a lifestyle that cultivated dependence on God. He did this through the regular practice, for example, of silence and solitude. That in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of moments when his brothers would have probably wanted him to lean in, when his disciples wanted him to lean in, seize upon the crowd, now do the big one. Really wow them, show them. He would just disappear. He would go and be by himself and listen. He would seek this out. He made it a regular practice of his life. And because of that, he cultivated dependence on his father. Jesus was regularly immersed in prayer. Jesus prayed regularly. It was a constant conversation he was having between his father and him. Regularly prayed. We cannot have a dependent life on God without prayer. And I say this uh, even to, to myself just as much as to any of us here. Uh, Prayer is the one that I so easily overlook, but is something that is so incredibly essential to what it means to be a Christian. Because it pushes against self-dependency. It reminds us that we are not the ones doing this work. It is God. So Jesus cultivated and had a life of prayer. Jesus cultivated a life of scriptural immersion. One of the things that I noticed when I was going through seminary and studying more in-depthly a lot of these books, was just how often Jesus, and for that matter, Paul and Peter and any of the other gospel writers, quoted either directly or indirectly from the Old Testament. I mean, it was like almost like every other thing that they said had some type of roots in the Old Testament. It was the language that they spoke. It was the metaphors that they understood life through. It was the lens through which they understood everything. It was their lingua franca, if you will. If you think of uh, Frank, his lingua franca is the office. He probably quotes that more than anything. For Jesus, it was the Old Testament, which I know makes Frank seem a little shallow. (laughs) Frank also loves the Old Testament. It's deeply rooted in that. But that was what he did. And the reason he was able to do that, the reason he was so immersed in it, is he spent time in it. He spent time reading it. He spent time studying it. He spent time meditating on it. He probably had most of it memorized. I mean, he was God also, so he had all of it memorized. We'll say that. But Jesus, as a man, was deeply immersed in the scriptures. He knew it as though it was his native language. 
And these are some of the things that we do to cultivate dependency on God. Uh, there's a lot of other things we can do. There's actually a class that's happening this Wednesday. It's the last class of this six-week series. We have recordings of them if you haven't been able to attend, uh, all on these different spiritual habits and practices that cultivate dependency on God. And so if you want to know more about that, I would push you towards that. Uh, Ryan Brandt, who's a professor of theology at GCU and is also uh, attends here, is teaching the class. It, it, it's, uh, he's a brilliant guy. Um, and is diving into a lot of the same stuff. So the first thing we do in response to this is we cultivate a dependency on God. The second is that we have to wrap our heads around the reality that success in Christ often looks like failure in the world. We recognize that success in Christ often looks like failure in the world. Now, it doesn't always look like failure. You know, this is a church we have a lot of incredibly successful people in it. Success can just be an outgrowth or a fame, I guess I should say that. We have a lot of people that have a lot of influence and power in this church. And just because that happens doesn't necessarily mean that they're not following in the way of Christ. But it is important to recognize that if our goal, if how we define success is fame, is influence, is power, is any of those things, that is, at its heart, juxtaposed to Christ's vision of success. That you can't be death to self loving other people and be seeking that version of success. They do not work together. And so because of that, fame might happen, influence might happen, power might happen, but what we define as success is pouring ourselves out for other people. And what that will mean, and the sooner we can just recognize this, the sooner we can just wrap our heads around it, make peace with it, I think the better, is that what success looks like to Christ, what success will look like, success will look like in Christ, will look like failure to the world. So we want to cultivate dependency. We want to recognize that Christ, that success in Christ often looks like failure in the world. Because ultimately, and to kind of tie it back together, what we see, if we want to have a loving life, if we want to live as Christ lived in this world, if we want, as love walked among us with Christ, as we are the church, the love that is walking among this world, we have to be dependent on God. There is no way to do that without dependency on God. That the foundation of a loving life is dependence on him. One of the things that I've been uh, doing as I've preached uh, lately is asking this, the two questions of the passage that I'm preaching on. And uh, oftentimes I do this as more of a means of preparation. I don't necessarily share it. But I want to close by actually sharing those two questions and how I answered them, because I think it's really important for how we understand how we should walk away from this. The two questions that I think every Bible passage is answering or doing is that every Bible passage is calling us from something and calling us to something. That we were being called from something and being called to something. 
If we want to understand how any passage of the scriptures applies to us, we ask those questions. What is it calling us from and what is it calling us to? And in this passage, I think we have to ask that question. And as I was preparing and as I was looking at this, the way I ultimately answered this is that what God is calling us from in this is the destructive self-dependency and empty vision of success. That deep down, God knows that this vision that we have of what it means to be wise and what it means to be successful is dead in the water. That it will destroy us, that it will destroy other people. It is not the way we were meant to live. So he's ultimately calling us from a life of destruction because of this empty vision of success. A few years ago, a guy named Dustin Kensrue wrote a song with a guy named Brian Eichelberger, actually, that's his real last name, um, called It's Not Enough. We actually do a lot of Dustin Kensrue songs um, up here on Sundays. But I wanted to share the lyrics of this because I think it really points to this idea of why this view of success is not sufficient. Uh, this is him kind of wrestling with this. So let me read the lyrics of it. It says, Though all the wealth of men was mine to squander, and towers of ivory rose beneath my feet, were palaces and pleasure mine to wander, the sum of it would leave me incomplete. Though every soul would hold my name in honor, and truest love was always by my side, my praises sung by grateful sons and daughters, my soul would never still be satisfied. It's not enough. It's not enough. I could walk the world forever till my shoes were filled with blood. It's not enough. It's not enough. Though I could live for all to lift them higher or spend the centuries seeking light within, though I indulged my every dark desire, exhausting every avenue of sin, it's not enough. It's not enough. I could walk the world forever till my shoes were filled with blood. It's not enough. It's not enough. I could right all wrongs or ravage everything beneath the sun. It's not enough. It's not enough to make me whole. It's not enough. It never was. Awake my soul. It's not enough. It never was. It's not enough. It's not enough. I could walk the world forever till my shoes were filled with blood. It's not enough. It's not enough. I could right all wrongs or ravage everything beneath the sun. It's not enough. It's not enough. Though all would bow to me, till I could drink my fill of fear and love. It's not enough. It's not enough. So what he says there is that there is something underneath all of this. There is something destructive and evil underneath it all. That it is not enough to give us what we ultimately desire. It is not enough to give us what we ultimately need. And Jesus is calling us from that. The Bible is calling us from that, from the destructive reality of the empty vision of success and wisdom in this world. But he's not just calling us from something, he's calling us to something. And what he's calling us to is the love-filled life of God dependency and others-focused success. What he's calling us to is what we've called in the past the upside-down values of the kingdom of God, this ironic and weird and counterintuitive way in which Jesus describes the real way to life. He says, if you want to gain your life, you must lose it. That if you want to live, you must die. 
that the way we were meant to live was not seeking our own fame, not seeking our own influence, not seeking our own welfare, but pouring ourselves for the welfare and sake of others. And that we are not enough to give us the wisdom that we need. We can't play the game and we can't win the game. That what we need is him. That this world needs a master and he is the only one who can be the good one. He knows that and he's calling us into that. I keep on thinking of the question he asks later in this chapter. Asking, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Because if our vision of the world, if our vision of success is that of fame and influence and power and glory, if that's our vision, we will always be thirsty. We will never be satisfied with what we can get from that. And what Jesus is calling us to, what Jesus wants more than anything for us in these passages and in these moments is to recognize that there is emptiness and destruction there. And if we want to be satisfied, turn to him. He is the living water. He is the only thing that we can drink and then never again need a drink after that. He is the one who can fill us. Lord Jesus, we pray right now as we uh, finish, God, Lord, that you would convict our hearts, Lord, as we hear these words over and over again, as we look at this reality that you've called us to, God, I admit that it is, it is hard. God, it is so tempting to fall into the way that we see around us, Lord, to want fame, to want influence, to want power, to want to depend on ourselves and our own cunning to, to get ahead in this world, but Lord, we know and we trust that there is a better way forward. And Lord, we desperately need that. I pray that you would convict us of our sin, Lord. Convict us of those things that are keeping us from true life in you. Lord, that are keeping us from your water. God, I pray that you would uh, move us towards you, Lord, and give us wisdom. Lord, cultivate in us a dependence on you so that we can hear you in the midst of all things. So that we can look to you to know what to do in our life. And Lord, that ultimately you would remind us that there is joy in suffering. Lord, that there is life in death. Lord, we pray that you would move in us in that way, God. Convict us and draw us forward. We pray this in your name.